Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland, and um, this week we're going to talk to Stephen Miles. He's the executive director of Win Without War and a really smart guy. Uh, we're going to talk to him about Afghanistan. And um, whether you agree or disagree with what you hear, I'm fairly confident that um, you'll agree that it is unlike the discussions that are going on if you turn on like CNN or MSNBC. And um, part of that is just that we can take a little bit more time than they can. Um, but first, before we get to Stephen, I've got some uh, some gripes uh, that I have to get off my chest. Some gripes with the legacy media. Their coverage of Joe Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan this week, which is, you know, actually Donald Trump's withdrawal from Afghanistan, if you if you recall, um, it's been atrocious. It's been horrible, and it's it's striking to me to see reporters for whom like neutrality or supposed neutrality is so central to their whole identity. People who will, you know, not even vote. They tell you, I won't vote because I don't want anybody to think that I'm taking sides. And they feel comfortable blatantly editorializing when it comes to uh, war and peace. Um, When it comes to taking a hawkish position uh, when it comes to American exceptionalism, right? I mean, you can be a neutral journalist journalist, and you'll feel free to say that Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan is an unmitigated disaster. And you don't have to back that up with any reporting suggesting that the war could have ended without any bloodshed. Uh, you don't have to identify specific mistakes that they made. You don't have to offer any analysis of what might have been done differently. Um, you can just offer this, this as a, it's, it's like a, an objective fact. And these are, these are opinions projected, presented as, you know, objective facts. And I don't know if you know this, but journalists are, uh, constantly disciplined for expressing their own opinions, opinions on social media, even on their own, you know, personal accounts, um, there was, of course, the Washington Post reporter who was the victim of uh, sexual assault, and she wasn't allowed to report on stories that um, had to do with sexual assault because her bosses said she couldn't be fair, right? She was biased against sexual assault, which is a crazy, crazy construct. Um, <clears throat> and there's a lot of examples of that. Like, so... Uh, Reporters can't express support for the idea that black lives matter as much as other lives, you know, Uh, they can't express opinions about um, racially discriminatory policing being bad because that's biased. And this is in keeping with a lot of terrible reporting on the Biden administration. Remember that the press began this presidency with this obsession, obsession with Biden's ability to heal our polarized nation and bring people together or his lack of ability to do that. And, you know, that was based on a, a, a theme of his campaign and obviously something he could not impose on us, right? He could not make people come together if they were not interested in coming together. And reporters are, you know, they're constantly, constantly complaining that um, Biden hasn't held as many press briefings as they want. They are, 
uh, also relentless in portraying like long-standing issues, things that have been that are not new as crises that have just sprung up in the seven and a half months since Biden was inaugurated. So you get this narrative like crime is up, crime surge. Well, I mean, if you dig in the data, and we've talked about this on the show, there was what now appears to have been a spike, uh, hopefully a short-term spike, in gun violence that began uh, long before Biden was in office. And, uh, of course, policing is, is mostly a local matter. Or, you know, look at the border, right? There's nothing new that's happening at the border. There was a degree of pent-up demand for people who wanted to come over because of the pandemic. But uh, the the root issues here, the push factors, the pull factors, those are not new. And at the heart of all of this, the root of all of this, this kind of reporting, I think, is pretty simple. Um, the press spent four years reporting on Trump's 30,000 uh, lies, uh, his daily scandals, almost daily scandals, all the tales of, you know, corruption and incompetence. And they feel that they need to show that they don't have a liberal bias by coming up with negative stories about this administration at a similar pace, right? And never mind the facts, never mind that, you know, the, the Biden team may make errors and missteps, but they are basically competent, right? That isn't, that isn't interesting. And that doesn't shield them from the idea that, you know, there's a, a liberal bias in, in the mainstream press. And so just in the past three days, the National Review ran a piece. It was titled A Crisis of Competence, right? Um, the conservative Washington Times ran a piece titled Biden's Crisis of Competence. And here you have CNN and Chris Salizzo, which is one of the worst pundits, supposedly liberal CNN running a piece titled Joe Biden is Facing a Crisis of Competence. And, you know, what this tells me is that working the refs is effective, you know. And when when someone like me points this out, um, reporters dismiss us as like partisans. And, and that's not what's going on, because I... You know, I, I certainly am all for criticizing Biden and I'm all for criticizing Democrats. It's the superficial gossipy nature of it. It's the it's the kind of lazy conventional wisdom and the contrived scandals that that drive me back. And on that note, let's um, let's take a quick break and then try to push back on some lazy beltway coverage of Afghanistan, uh, which, you know, ultimately is a, a positive story, right? We are getting out of Afghanistan after 20 years of war and destruction. It was always a nebulous mission. It was always unclear why we were there. Um, and, and we're out. We're out. So stay tuned. We'll take a quick break and come right back and talk to uh, Stephen Miles. Hey! 
Welcome back. The other day, I got into a little thing on Twitter with um, Jim Shioto. Shioto? Shioto? I don't know how to pronounce his name. He's a national security correspondent and sometimes anchor for CNN. And he went and asked John Bolton to weigh in on the Afghanistan situation. And of course, Bolton said exactly what you knew he'd say, right? He said, this is a disaster. And the blame lies squarely with Donald Trump, uh, who he had a famous falling out with, and with Joe Biden, who is a Democrat. And of course, Bolton would say that. And I thought it had zero news value. But beyond having zero news value, here was a guy who, as part of the second Bush administration, played a really central role in the decision to send ground troops into Afghanistan, right? Because there was an option where we would negotiate um, possibly bin Laden's surrender with the Taliban. The Saudis were involved in that process for a while. Um, And then he played a central role in the subsequent decision to divert resources from Afghanistan to the invasion of Iraq. So in no universe is John Bolton a disinterested Observer, but that seems to be kind of par for the course with the the media uh, coverage of this this week. And I wanted to book someone uh, to talk about Afghanistan, and I figured I'd go outside the box. And I know this is super unconventional, but I decided to get a guest who hasn't been completely wrong about Afghanistan since the very beginning. And it's a very like again, it's an unusual approach, but sometimes I like to just get creative. So I went with that. And I'm pleased to be joined now by Stephen Miles. Stephen is the executive director of Win Without War. He is a person who has not been completely wrong about Afghanistan since the very beginning. Stephen, welcome to We've Got Issues. Thanks for having me on, Josh. Thanks for taking the time. I want to read. Uh, I want to read something by Judd Legum. He's a veteran reporter. He spoke with a political communications person who said the following about trying to get guests booked on uh, cable TV who support the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Let me quote what he said. Uh, this, again, is, is the, um, the communications person talking to Judd Legum. He said, I've been in political media for over two decades, and I've never experienced something like this before. Not only can I not get people booked on shows, but I can't even get TV bookers who frequently book my guests to give me a call back. I turn on TV and watch CNN and, frankly, a lot of NBC, MSNBC shows, and they're presenting it as if there's no, not a voice out there willing to defend the president and his decision to withdraw. But I offered those very shows those voices, and the shows purposely decided to shut them out. What's your view of the coverage? Uh, does it align with what that unnamed comms person was saying? Do you think the negativity is justified? What's your overall take? Yeah, look, I think that sounds that sounds very true. Um, I, we should give some credit. I think one notable exception has been uh, Mehdi Hassan, uh, who who both has been hosting his own show on on Peacock and also uh, two weeks of of Chris Hayes' show on MSNBC, and just. Mehdi himself, who was originally opposed to the war in 2001, um, has been fantastic as, as well. He's had a number of guests who, who fit outside the mainstream. So so credit where it's due there. He's usually but, the outlier in this, isn't he? <laughs> he is, yes. I, I, think, all the time. I think otherwise you're right. Look, I, I, think, I think there has been a litany of folks uh, who have been paraded before us on, um, you know, every every media outlet um, who, who have had a lot of role in the last 20 years of conflict. Um, and, and unfortunately they're being presented as if that 
didn't exist. Those 20 years didn't exist. And they're just an informed national security voice who can comment on the last couple of weeks of what's been happening in Afghanistan. And look, it's a, it's a genuine disservice uh, to the public um, to, to not have a more honest conversation. It's also a disservice to the public because it's it's just wildly out of step with where the American public's views are on this war and have That's been right. for a very long time. Um, and and as as I think the, the commentator said, um, it's not for lack of voices out there willing to to do these commentaries, do this do this conversation. Look, I you know my my DMs are open, my my phones my phone lines out there. Uh, folks should feel free to have my voice on, but more importantly than me or other kind of anti-war voices or, or progressive voices who might be, uh, you know, willing to talk about this. You know, one thing we put out there very early on um, on Twitter is a list of Afghan voices that folks could hear from, um, because you would be uh, you would be uh, forgiven if, if the last couple of weeks of media, you, you were left with the impression that Afghans were all mutes and, and unable to talk um, for themselves. They have been nowhere in the coverage. Um, and there are a number of tremendous voices out there across the political spectrum. There are progressive Afghans who, who will talk about how they never wanted their, their country to be a, a land of occupation and be used as a battlefield for U.S. proxy wars. And there are others in Afghan civil society who are opposed to who were opposed to Joe Biden's decision. Um, but after 20 years, you would think that that it maybe it was time to actually hear from Afghan voices. And I think that's been one of the most infuriating parts of, of what we've seen in the last couple of days of, of the media. Yeah, it has been. Uh, let me let me get your evaluation of the Biden administration's actions in bringing this 20 year war to an end. The conventional wisdom, obviously, which is almost universal, if if not for, you know, Mehdi Hassan and a couple of others, is that this is a screw up of epic proportions. Um, and I want to know, is that true, false, or is it premature to even judge? I think it's a little bit premature uh, in the sense that we will have to wait and see uh, ultimately how successful the rescue operations, the evacuations that are going on right now are. And look, there's going to be plenty of time, and I have no doubt that, that Congress will do what it has said it's going to do, which is investigate uh, the Biden administration's handling of the, of the last couple of days. Hopefully, they'll they'll go beyond the Biden administration and 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 the White House and look into the Pentagon uh, and their behavior um, and whether or not they've spent the last year and a half since this drawdown deadline was announced planning for the drawdown or what we know they've done historically pushing for the uh, trying to push to prevent the drawdown from actually happening and, and not actually planning for the thing that that we've said we're going to do working working instead to undermine that and to try to reverse that decision i think there's a lot of answers there but more importantly like we have to take a giant step back and say this has been 20 years of a failed war you know we've had glimpses into this through things like the afghanistan papers that the washington post and others published but you haven't even had to go like looking for the failures of this war they've been abundantly clear to everyone who has followed along and and the the lies that have been covering up that failure have been very thinly uh, made and, and hard, not very hard to see through. So it's it's a little absurd to think that a war that we failed 20 years uh, in a row and we suddenly were going to get everything out, get everything, everything right on the way out. That's not to excuse some, some very real uh, mistakes that the Biden administration may have made, um, but it's also to put a little bit of this in perspective. Um, and I think we, we also need to remember that you don't get to fight wars. The National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, said this well, right? Wars are messy when they end. 
um, particularly wars in which you've been fighting for two decades, or in the case of Afghanistan, where there's really been four decades of conflict. The notion that this would just be simple and easy and, and without challenge is patently absurd, uh, that, uh, as is the notion that things were, were not difficult for the last several years. The deadliest years of this war for Afghan civilians have been the last several years. This is a war in which the Taliban has been making gains, in which people have been dying. Unfortunately, we're not seeing what we'd like to see, or we haven't seen everything as, as we'd like it to go, but that's been the history of the war. Um, so hopefully the Biden administration um, will continue to get things, will continue to change in ways that, that accomplishes its what has to be its number one mission right now, getting as many people out of Afghanistan as they can, including not just US citizens, but those Afghans who are seeking refuge. Um, I think the jury's out on that. We're in the middle of that operation. And, you know, we really just need to take a step back if we want to talk about what went wrong and look at 20 years and not the last 20 days. Yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> uh, we're recording this midday on Thursday. The Pentagon had a briefing Thursday morning this morning, uh, and they said, I caught it, they said 5,200 U.S. troops are now at the Kabul airport. They're bringing in more troops and equipment. The U.S. military, according to the U.S. military, has airlifted 7,000 people since August 14th and a total of 12,000 since mid-July. Uh, the Biden administration says it will continue evacuating people until all U.S. nationals at least are out, even if that takes, uh, takes them past the August 31st full withdrawal deadline. The Taliban are reportedly avoiding contact with U.S. troops. Uh, this is according to the Pentagon again. So there's obviously been these scenes of chaos at the airport. Um, there are also reports that the Taliban is restricting, like, the flow of people who are authorized to leave. Um, but so far, it's at present, it seems like the initial madness has been stabilized to some degree. They brought in troops. Um, to the airport to make that more secure and to um, assure that we wouldn't have more situations where people were literally falling to their deaths, clinging off of aircraft that were taking off, which was, you know, obviously horrific. Yeah. Um, so, Stephen, there have also been scattered reports of executions and other violence. Could you say that there's like, in it, it is inherent to ending this kind of military conflict that there there is going to be some chaos. Do you believe that we could have that we could have ended our military engagement while minim while while preventing this kind of scattered reports? You know, it's like there there seems to be a lot of people who believe that there is a, a, a massive amount of uh, revenge killings and stuff that that does not appear to be based on what we're hearing so far, the case is the belief that we could, if we had just gotten the policy different, we could have pulled out without any sort of bloodshed. Is that born of American exceptionalism or the view of the American military as this kind of omnipotent actor? I think it's, I think it's a combination of those things. And I, I think you're right. You know, we should be, we should be mindful that that we are hearing reports of atrocities. We're not hearing 
um, the worst that we could be hearing at the moment, which is good. Um, that's There's reason to believe that's because the eyes of the world are on Afghanistan and, and the U.S. and others are in dialogue um, with the Taliban. That's a reason to keep both of those things this, that way. We also have a there's a long history of the Taliban, and, and we should we should not be naive about um, some of the atrocities and human rights abuses we're likely to see. Yes. Uh, but but you 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 are unquestionably right that that if you look at the situation um, as as we see it, uh, there is no there is no perfect way to end a war. Um, there is a reality uh, that that these things are challenging, um, and we we've come to believe in the kind of awesome power of the U.S. military, uh, and it is an awesome power. Look, we we as as you just said, we have sent thousands of prepositioned U.S. forces. Uh, into the country and, and secure the airport on on very very little notice. I mean, th- what what is happening is a, is a powerful uh, demonstration of American military might, and we've seen numerous powerful demonstrations of American military might. That's not the problem, though. That's not the that's not the answer. Is that's not the solution to the challenges that we have, and because we've spent decades now only investing in the U.S. military. Our toolkit for how you solve these other problems is incredibly bare, uh, and so you know we don't have at our disposal a lot of the tools you might need to kind of deal with some of these challenges, and we've at the same time just led ourselves to believe that the U.S. military can do everything. U.S. military can do a lot of things, and they can do most military missions asked of them, but they can't do everything. Uh, they, they can't. They can't change underlying political dynamics. You know, they can't. They can't have. They can't end the corruption um, that we saw in Afghanistan. And point of fact, there's good reason, and there's plenty of reporting about the role the U.S. military and its presence played in fueling the corruption over the last several years in Afghanistan. So I'm going to come back have, to that. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to. That. We have to be honest about about the limits here. And we've we've because so much of this war has taken place um, out of the public's eye. We often aren't left with the realities of the war. You know, we've we've been told as the public, you know, super precision munitions. We've been told by our government just patently absurd lies, like we only ever kill bad guys. We haven't killed any innocent civilians. You know, again, these these truths weren't hard to find if you went looking for them. But the the same media that now is having all these generals back in there, honestly, hasn't been telling the story about reality in Afghanistan. And the limits of what was happening when we had 100,000 U.S. troops and another 50,000 NATO troops there on top of that in the country. And if, if there were things we couldn't do with 150,000 military forces there, there's no reason to think that, that we were going to do them with 2,500 um, U.S. military forces there. And so we have to have some honest conversations about this uh, as a country. And hopefully it leads to a reckoning and, and a debate about the limits of U.S. military power. You know, I, I know we want to move on, but it might, that's my, not going to happen, Stephen. We've been I through know, this. I mean, it, come on. It needs it. My favorite example of this is, is actually not from Afghanistan. It's from Iraq. You know, we've now had three battles of Fallujah. Right. The, the reality is that and, and there have been others that the that the Iraqi armed forces have had. Right. Like. It's not winning the Battle of Fallujah that was the challenge. It's not, it's not the ability to take and control land that's been the challenge. It is all of the other things that go along with it. How do you have uh, representative government? How do, you, how do you support people, not fuel corruption? How do you allow for political processes and, and not just the kind of 
uh, warlordism and, and that we've seen time and time again. We don't have good answers for this. And we have to start being honest with that. And so that we stop putting ourselves in situations like this as a country where, unfortunately, the most likely outcome is the kinds of tragedies we're seeing. Yeah. You know, uh, in 2007, I don't want to get too too far afield. Um, the Iraqi parliament, this government that we had set up, this democracy, ostensible mm-hmm. democracy, um, a super majority emerged and they said, we want to end the status of forces agreement. We want the U.S. to withdraw. This is 2007. This is the peak of the insurgency. One of the bloodiest years in Iraq, if not mm-hmm. the bloodiest year. I think it might have been the bloodiest year. And according to the Constitution that Iraqis had voted to ratify, um, that was within the purview of that parliament, right, to reject an extension of the U.S. occupation. And they were just ignored. They, They were just ignored, right? And the thing that I keep thinking about this week as I see the media coverage of our withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, media coverage, and I talked about this in the intro, I went on a little rant, that has been really frenzied and horrifically bad. Um, the media here just ignored that story. It got no attention whatsoever. So I covered it with Raid Jarrar. We won a, like, a Project Censored Award or something from that. But um, it just never... It just never pierced the consciousness of the American public or the media that this was happening. And again, it violated the Iraqi constitution that we had just, just set up that we'd had, we'd gone through this painstaking process leading the Iraqis through the development of this. I mean, it's just, uh, it's very frustrating to, to cover these things for many years and kind of have a, a bigger picture is, is very frustrating. Um, I want to play you something, a little clip from Donald Trump. This is just last month. This is Trump at a uh, one of his Nuremberg rallies. So let's take a quick listen. I started the process. All the troops are coming back home. They couldn't stop the press. 21 years is enough, don't we think? 21 years. They couldn't stop the process. They wanted to, but it was very tough to stop the process when other things were out. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's a shame. 21 years by a government that wouldn't last. The only way they last is if we're there. What are we going to say? We'll stay for another 21 years, then we'll stay for another 50. The whole thing is ridiculous. So we're bringing our troops back home from Iraq. We're bringing the troops back home from Afghanistan. Okay, so here's Trump bragging about how he had uh, negotiated the end of the Afghan war how crazy it is that it took 21 years, nobody else could do it, and how Biden um, was unable, because he had been so brilliant in this, Biden was unable to reverse his action, even though he wanted that. Okay, so I don't know why the press is not um, manifesting that reality. You know, Trump cut a deal with the Taliban to withdraw all U.S. forces within 14 months, and that was 18 months ago. And Trump was president for 10 and a half of those months. So uh, let me ask you a question. Stephen, it, it pains me to do this, but should we give Trump credit for ending this war? 
or are there reasons not to? The way yeah, he did. I, I uh, Joshua, I don't know what your what the cursing policy is on the you podcast. Can curse. You can curse. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I you know, I, look, I think it, it should surprise no one that Donald Trump is completely full of shit. Um, yeah. and 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 I think it's safe to say he does not uh, or have any particular thoughts about Afghanistan, nor did he care about the people of Afghanistan, nor did he think much about the policy of Afghanistan. I think what is clear is Donald Trump was very attuned to the reality that the American public wanted this war to end. Yes. Uh, and and I think that is what was the driving force between, before this. We, we know that for him, this was connected into his election campaigning and election sloganing and, and that he would be the guy who would end the war. He obviously spent no time thinking about what that meant, about what it would take to do that. Uh, the time during which he was supposed to have been doing this, let's remember he was busy uh, having his military uh, try, you know, trying to get his military involved in the response to the Black Lives Matter uh, protests after George, Ford, George Floyd's death. He was uh, busy fighting with his military about whether or not they would support his efforts to basically ignore the results of the election. Uh, he he was he was helping foment an insurrection on the U.S. Capitol. Uh, there was a lot of things going on. Very few of them were in any way connected to the realities of planning. He look, he fired his Defense Department chief, and and then he refused to recognize the election in a way that meant that the Biden administration on its way in spent several months where they were basically unable to work with the Pentagon in ways that were kind of important if they were meant to be doing major military operations to wind this war down in the first yes. couple months. Yes. That, that should not be lost on people. Uh, you know, you can draw a direct through line to the incompetence of the Trump administration, no doubt to some of the challenges we're seeing now. And again, there'll be lots of time to get into that as we go forward. And there'll be lots of times to, to debate, you know, wh- whether whether this should have been done when and, and how and, and those sorts of things. But, you know, you bring up a bigger point, which is if you've watched the media for the last few days, you would think that Joe Biden started the war in Afghanistan and, <laughs> yeah. and, and or alternatively that Gerald Ford was blamed for the failure of the war in <laughs> Vietnam. I mean, let's remember that George W. Bush exists for a second. Like, let's remember who started this war. You alluded to this earlier. George W. Bush and his administration had an offer on the table from the Tal- from the Taliban who said, we recognize we have been defeated. We will hand over Osama bin Laden. You guys can take over the country. They wanted to blow things up. They wanted to do something different. So they rejected that. Uh, you know, echoes, echoes of, of rejections uh, before the Iraq war that could have avoided that war because they were intent on the military missions that they wanted to pursue. So yes. let's have a whole heaping pile of scorn and remember where this war started, where its execution was first bungled, where the many of the biggest mistakes were made. And, and look, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to be partisan here. Let's also remember that there was an opportunity to, to not make many of these mistakes uh, during the beginning of the Obama administration when he allowed the military to basically uh, corner him into a major surge um, in the first part of his administration, something that Joe Biden opposed and something as Joe Biden has now said as president, I think you can't ignore that history here, knowing he did not want to be cornered in the same way that he saw a president be cornered when he was the vice president. Uh, and and there is a reality to the fact that Joe, that Barack Obama announced the drawdown of Afghanistan, the uh, U.S. forces of Afghanistan in 2011. 
right? That this is a decade ago that we announced we were leaving Afghanistan. It was supposed to be done seven years ago in 2014. There has been a seven-year extension of the drawdown that included another surge during the Trump administration and a year during the Trump administration in which we dropped more bombs on Afghanistan than any other year of the war. So there is a lot of blame to go around here, and there will be plenty of time to get into it. But we ought to remember that this war existed before two weeks ago, that there are problems and challenges for how we got hmm. here. Um, and and I, I do not think history will look back kindly on Donald Trump's handling of this war. I don't think history will look kind, well, that kindly on either George Bush's or um, or or uh, or uh, Barack, Barack Obama's. Obama. And I think how history looks back on Joe Biden on, in this war will in large part be based on some of the decisions he makes in the actions of his administration in the days ahead. And whether they do similar to what we've done in, after other wars like Vietnam, which is give safe harbor to those whom we have a moral responsibility to after years and years, and in this case, decades of using their country as a battlefield. That comes with a moral responsibility. We have the means, we have the capability, the president should be doing that. I think ultimately how he's judged through history for the handling of the war is going to be decided by what happens in the next few days ahead, not just what's already happened in the, in the few days past. Folks, I want you to keep that in mind. Um, the point before that last point, which is super important, about announcing the, the, the um, imminent withdrawal or ultimate withdrawal of U.S. troops in 20 in 2011. Um, every time you see a news report about this rushed or precipitous or sudden end of the war. Right? I, I love There's, the notion of a decade as being precipitous. I, mean, I, I, I never stop finding that hilarious. But even if you even if you ignore the longer history and you just think that we made an agreement to end our involvement in 14 months time. And that agreement was 18 months ago, even just in those terms, it's, it's ludicrous. Um, you know, it's funny that you, you mentioned Vietnam because right before the pandemic hit, I went to Vietnam and I was in Saigon and there's that building where the helicopter was taking off of the roof, this famous mm -hmm. picture, right? A lot of people say it was the embassy. It wasn't the embassy. It was a building with a CIA field office. And, it's not a tourist attraction, but if you ask nicely, the security guards will let you go to the roof. And uh, it was fascinating. And one of the things that was so striking about being in Vietnam, you know, 40 years after the war, is beyond how, like, warm the Vietnamese people are and how forgiving they are towards Americans um, and welcoming is just that, you know, the the country is really thriving. It's also dotted with Starbucks. You know, it's very westernized. It's it's um, the process. I, and I'm not predicting the same outcome in Afghanistan. It was a very different situation. But the process of getting back on its feet started with ending the conflict. That was the beginning. It wasn't smooth. I mean, a lot of people who were our allies did not get out and did did suffer retribution, but I mean, that long process has to start. We're going to take a quick break, um, but stay tuned because we're going to be right back with Stephen in just a minute. And there's, there's a lot more I want to cover. Stay tuned. About 10 million of us today marching. Around the world, millions of people don't want this war. We have never gotten justice through war. We don't believe the lies are being fed to us through the media. We all speak with 
Welcome back. I'm still Joshua Holland, and I'm still talking to Stephen Miles, who is still the executive director of In Without War. Um, you mentioned in passing the Afghanistan papers. This was um, for listeners who haven't paid close attention. For the past 14 years, a, a special inspector general for Afghanistan reconstruction has compiled a series of reports, regular reports on the progress we've made, how much resources we've sunk into the project. Um, they've detailed massive amounts of corruption, uh, all sorts of structural problems in terms of agencies having ill-defined missions, agencies being dishonest uh, when reporting up to higher levels of government. The Washington Post filed the Freedom of Information Act and got all of this stuff. Stephen, were you surprised... As a person who is familiar with that history and who has read those through those reports and understands <clears throat> how much corruption and bullshit this whole thing has been built on, were you surprised that the Afghan government, that we had spent 20 years and hundreds of billions of dollars to stand up, collapsed so quickly? Or, or were you less surprised than the intelligence agencies and the media? No, I will say I'm, I was surprised that it happened as quickly as it did. I think, I think as you're hearing from many folks, it, it's not ultimately surprising that it happened. The speed with which it happened is surprising. And one of the reasons is, is we now know, based on reporting um, in the Washington Post and elsewhere, um, that there was a series of deals cut um, with government officials, with military leaders over the last year and a half in many places um, that, that, that essentially negotiated handovers and, and, and surrenders and, and transition to power. Uh, things, things that we didn't know, that it kind of goes beyond in some ways the, the, the what we knew. Now, in hindsight, when you think about it and you think about some of the corruption that was there and you think about, about some of the realities, perhaps that shouldn't have been surprising. Perhaps we should have had more foresight. But, you know, look, at General Milley, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs said yesterday, you know, certainly... There were there were analyses and assessments from the military and the intelligence community that this could happen. Nothing said 11 days. You know, nothing said that the matter, the speed with which it, it could happen um, was 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 possible or likely. And so, you know, I think there are some folks who have been saying for a long time and I want to give them credit. This will happen faster than you think. Um, it caught me by surprise. And I'm not afraid to say that, um, you know, you said earlier uh, you want to talk to somebody who's not been wrong. I've been wrong about Afghanistan plenty, I'm quite sure. 
Uh, and I think everybody who follows it from the West has been, which is kind of the, the point, part of the problem. Um, and, and is one of the things that comes through loud and clear, um, both in the Afghanistan papers that were leaked um, by the Washington Post and also the, the CIGAR reports, the Special Inspector General reports that you referenced earlier. You know, we, we did not know what we were doing. Um, and, and very, very often those who did, particularly Afghan voices and others, um, were simply left out of the conversation or ignored. Um, I think when we all look back on this period, I don't think there's there's going to be anyone who's going to feel um, anything other than shame uh, and, and sorrow for the havoc, the destruction, the death, the, the war that we've waged um, for decades. And, and, and I think that's an unfortunate reality of what it means to be at war for 20 years. I mean, there are revisionists who will absolutely have a different take on that and not feel any Oh, shame. yeah. There are people um, who won't feel shame because there are people in yeah. this town who can't feel shame, unfortunately. Incapable, incapable of shame. Yeah. Uh, by Doesn't the way, mean they that, shouldn't feel shame, but you're By right, the way, you're, you're a terrible pundit because I, I said you were not wrong and you, you, you corrected <laughs> me. So that's, that's bad punditry. Um, I think one of the real central issues and one of the reasons that I am less surprised, and, and let me say, I'm also surprised at the speed. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say it's not surprising that the, that the government collapsed as quickly as it did. But I am less surprised than a lot of people. And part mm -hmm. of that, part of the reason is that, um, and this did not get as much attention as I thought it should have back in 20, uh, late 2019, I think when they, early, early 2020, when they made the agreement with the Taliban, um, <clears throat> when, when Trump negotiated the agreement with the Taliban, they did not include the Afghan government in a party as a party to those negotiations, mm -hmm. right? They cut the Afghan government out of those negotiations entirely. What signal did that send? Because if you're talking about the legitimacy of the government, and we're fundamentally talking about a 300,000-man Afghan army having no interest in fighting to defend its government, um, that comes down to legitimacy, doesn't it? <coughs> Excuse me. I, absolutely. Look, I, I, I think, as we've been talking about, though, it should not surprise us that that's the reality. That's been the reality for quite some time. You know, there's been no question about who the most powerful person was in Afghanistan for a very long time. And it was always the U.S. general who was in charge of the war. You know, it was not it was not Hamid Karzai or Ashraf Ghani after him. It was not the, 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 the U.S. ambassador. You know, whether we had 100,000 troops on the ground or 2,500 troops on the ground, the U.S. general was in charge. And that's that's the way our country goes to war. That's the reality of what it was like to do this. And so, unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me that the Afghan government was left out, given the corruption of the Afghan government, given, given uh, you know, some of President Ghani's choices towards the end of his administration. I don't know how much of a difference it would made. I think it would have been far more important. And I think we did hear calls for this throughout to include Afghan civil society in these conversations. There is a robust Afghan civil society. And it's one thing the U.S. should be proud of having spent time and energy and money building over the last 20 years and supporting, um, but then we left them out. And this is almost always what happens um, when, when a bunch of the guys who have been doing the fighting get together to make quote unquote peace deals. They leave out the people who are the ones who are actually going to be most instrumental to the peace, right? Um, th this is one of the reasons you see academic literature so clear that women, when you have women at the negotiating table, peace deals are ultimately more successful and last longer. When you have civil society involved, 
they were ultimately successful and last longer. So we perhaps shouldn't have been surprised, but it is in fact deeply connected to the reality of how we got here. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I studied international conflict resolution in in college, multilateral negotiations, all that stuff, and it the examples are just history is littered with examples of this of people being left out of multilateral talks and then those talks leading to an agreement that falls apart immediately because people mm-hmm. were left out and and key combatants were left out as you know um, and I think that we absolutely have to connect the endemic corruption detailed in those um, inspector general's reports and elsewhere in independent reporting as well with the fact that this that this army did not have uh, an interest in, in fighting um, uh, to defend the government it, you know the the former president Ashraf Ghani has popped up in the UAE uh, perhaps with 160 million dollars although he denies that I don't know but uh, you know you got you got to connect that Stephen let me wade into a difficult area um, mm-hmm. this is I think a, a kind of a a quagmire that a lot of people on the left liberals and the left get caught in um on one hand on the one hand the plight of afghan women and girls has been used as a cudgel against opponents of the war and and against supporters of bringing that war to an end that's consistent and it's been we've seen and we also saw that in iraq we've seen it elsewhere it's also true that many of the people who use those women as a key rationale for um interventionism as part of their you know pro-intervention arguments do not acknowledge that women and girls and also men male civilians suffer horrifically from war itself and finally i think it's important to point out that the the idea that enlightened westerners have a duty to protect women in other cultures from their own men from their fathers and brothers and husbands or whatever has a really long tradition um, you know, in, in European colonial ideologies. It, it, it has justified a lot of interventionism. So that's all on one hand, mm-hmm. on the one hand, right? And then on the other hand, it is absolutely true that uh, certainly in the 1990s, the Taliban's very harsh, very right-wing interpretation of Islam led to ghastly abuses of women and girls uh, seeking to have some modicum of freedom and, and, and basically kept them from participating in society uh, and also abuses of men who didn't comply or adhere to that very fundamentalist and very severe interpretation of Islam. We should not say this is Islam because mm-hmm. there are many different interpretations of Islam. This is among the most uh, regressive. How do you sort those conflicting urges or arguments out? Because again, this seems like the biggest trap for decent people on the lift left or uh, liberal side of this, uh, like we're we're prone to feminist arguments. Mm-hmm. Uh, your thoughts? Yeah, it's I mean, wicked, I, I, sticky. I think absolutely, but I, I do think there's some simple truths here that you can start with. Let, let's start with neither you or I are women or Afghan or let alone Afghan women, and the reality of if you are interested in in wanting to respect, protect the rights, support Afghan women. It starts with listening to Afghan women and almost to a T, the folks you are talking about are not not only not them, not Afghan women themselves, but they're not they're not in dialogue. They're not in partnership with Afghan women. You know, in our work at Women Without War, we've, we've gone through the last several days 
Um, we, we make sure we are in dialogue with partners um, in the Afghan diaspora with progressive Afghan voices. We, there are amazing groups out there like Madre that are doing work connected from a feminist perspective, connected with Afghan women and girls. And they're out there saying what it is that they uh, what they want, how they want this handled, what they don't want done. And, and I won't I, I would never hazard to speak for them. And I think the, the takeaway is we need to do more to listen to them. So that's, that's, that's the first part here. And I, I, I know you agree with that, but yes. I, I think, I think the second part is I think we have to, to call a little bit of bullshit here. And, you know, I said this on Twitter, but I'll, but I'll repeat it here. Like I just have zero patience for some of these attacks, particularly coming from folks on the right who have spent years dehumanizing Muslims, who have spent years, who spent their entire careers trying to take away the rights of women, right? Who have done things like spent the last several years trying to destroy and dismantle refugee resettlement, who have shown a complete and utter disregard for Afghan lives through things like the Muslim ban and through their behavior and their policies towards Afghanistan. And I have no patience for the notion that they have any credibility with which to talk about these issues. Right. So you, you you have to start with remembering that people's actions do inform the, the, the validity of, of what they're now saying. And you're absolutely right that there are a lot of folks for whom this is a cudgel. This is a talking point. They put in their messaging points that, that whose actions have shown a complete disregard for the lives and the rights of women and girls, not just in Afghanistan, but here at home for the lives of refugees, for the lives of Muslims like and I just, I just am not going to listen to them on these issues, right? So I think, I think we also have to be clear about that. I mean, now, that's refreshing we, just to not listen to them, but it is an effective talking point. And I, you know, I, as I am supportive of this withdrawal of ending this war, and I'm getting shit from liberals on Twitter about this, and they're saying, oh, we're abandoning the women, and it is weird because it's, um, it posits that the Taliban are a foreign actor. And we're yeah. like the indigenous force, which just turns reality on its head. Um, again, there are lots of women who adhere to a similar, you know, t- adhere to Wahhabism. There are lots mm-hmm. of women, you know, who it's it's not I don't know. It's it's it, it is no. difficult how effective it is. It, it's frustrating to me that a lot of people buy this. And I think maybe that's a reflection of the kind of inherent power of Islamophobia, right? I mean, like, it is. people it, on it, Twitter it, are like, oh, all the women are going to get raped. Oh, the women are not going to get raped, right? Well, They're going to be kept I, from going to school, maybe. That's, you know, it's like... I, look, I think I think we are going to see atrocities uh, committed, committed yeah. and, and we are going to see repression of women, and we should be clear-eyed and honest about that. Yes. And, and, and to your point, though, the weaponization of that progressive value uh, against us and against against the arguments is is what we're talking about, and we we also some of that is deeply rooted in Orientalism, right? Some of that is deeply rooted in bigotry and, and the kind of the unconscious bias that dehumanizes Afghan women and girls from that they might have their own voices, right? Um, you know, we yeah, I think we would all do better to to you know there was a, a Malala uh, had a had an op-ed in the New York Times talking about this, right? Like she, this is somebody who knows of what it, what she's speaking when she's talking about. Uh, the, the reality of the repression of the Taliban for women and girls going to school, right? Those are voices we can't that are out there and we should listen to them and we should stop. We, we should recognize the Orientalism in our approach that thinks that we know better or that it is somehow our job to quote unquote save save people. The white saviorism here is just off the charts, right? So so there's there's a lot of that recognition. 
But there is a clear value that we have as progressives about not wanting to see human rights abuses, not wanting to see atrocities, not wanting to see kinds of things that we are likely to see. And that becomes a practical question of what is actually effective and what is not. We have tried 20 years of military occupation and war. It has been devastating for Afghans. It has been absolutely devastating in terms of the, the impact on all of Afghanistan's civilians, in terms of uh, the, the lives lost, the tens of thousands of innocent civilians who died in these wars, the, hundred, the, the, the massive amounts of refugees that there were before the events of the last couple of weeks. We need to recognize that this tool was not a tool that solved the problem that is very much there. And that then we need to come to terms with the fact that we do not currently have tools that do solve that problem. And part of that reality is because we've spent years and years and trillions of dollars only investing in the U.S. military as the tool to solve these problems. Yes. We should not should not stop caring about these issues, but we should absolutely reject the false notion that the only way you can care about human rights is by going to war for people. If the last 20 years have shown us one thing, it is that you do not bring human rights at the barrel of a gun and at the at, at the bottom of a bomb, right? That is not ultimately conducive to building human rights. There are things that do. There are things like accountability processes. There are things like peace building processes. All of them, to get say they get pennies on the dollar of investments from the U.S. government, would be outrageously generous. You know, they get fractions of a penny. Yet they are far more effective and they are far more impactful. So we need to begin. You know, this is a perfect time. We're reflecting not just on what's happened in Afghanistan, but obviously 20 years of our post 9/11 wars. They have been a failure. We have tried to solve these problems militarily, and they haven't worked. They haven't worked for those who want to see human rights defended. They haven't worked for preventing violence. They may have worked in that that violence was displaced, that instead of terrorism attacks in the United States, we have had massive death and destruction throughout the Middle East from these wars. I don't think that's a moral calculus that we should accept, that our safety is dependent on terrorizing others. That We don't, we don't accept that as progressives or just as people, we don't accept that moral calculus here at home. We shouldn't accept it internationally. And we should use this opportunity to really question the underlying logic and think long and hard about what we want to invest in, what tools we want to put in our toolbox, and how we actually want to build systems that defend human rights and deal with these kinds of issues. Because the tools we have right now are just failing. That is really, really well said. And we you know, we need to figure out how we can support indigenous feminist movements, indigenous human rights movements, and um, recognize, I mean, you said we can't impose, you know, we can't promote human rights at gunpoint. Well, you can't impose a shift in gender norms at gunpoint. It mm -hmm. doesn't work that way. And I, I, my final point is that none of that is why we went into Afghanistan. You know, these are convenient arguments that are pulled out when people oppose these wars, but they, they were never the arguments made in favor of going in. This was about, you know, counterterrorism and striking back after 9-11, et cetera, et cetera. Steven, I've gone way over with you. Can I, do you have time for one more? Absolutely. One more yeah. question. Okay. Yeah, it's an important conversation. So I, it I is an important one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the Taliban are being a little vague here about whether they will adopt a similar kind of legal structure as the one that they enforced in the 1990s. I think everybody assumes that they're going to go right back to it. 
I personally think that like 20 years have passed and a lot of people have taken various lessons from the experience of the past 20 years, different experiences of the past 20 years. But um, again, they are being kind of vague. And a Taliban spokesman said this week that women would be allowed to work and go to school within the bounds of Islam, which doesn't mean anything because again, there's many interpretations. Um, when asked about whether they would mandate that women wore burqas, the full body, full face covering, and that men must have beards, uh, no music. Uh, I think they were asked about that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, he said they are still evaluating. So I'm not Pollyannish about this, but I am looking at Saudi Arabia and I'm looking at Saudi, and I'm just going to call it Saudi propaganda. And I mean, millions of dollars of, uh, in, in government campaigns to influence the world. Central to that effort from the Saudi government is the fact that Saudi women are now allowed to drive can work outside the home. Like if you bring up chopping up critics with bone saws, they say, what about women driving? Right. That is like very central. Yeah. Uh, they, they want, uh, modernizing some gender norms to be like a proxy for liberalism and to, to be the end all of that conversation. The Saudis have always exerted a lot of influence over the Taliban as have the Pakistani. Is there a chance that the Afghan government will follow that lead? Um, without, again, without being overly optimistic or anything, is there a chance that it will be in their own interest to be more modern, to to put on a face of greater moderation in the sense that they'll need foreign investment mm -hmm. uh, and in the sense that that's the changing norm within the most conservative wing of, uh, of, of Islam as, as interpreted in Saudi Arabia as well. I, look, I think I, I think I think the reality is the Taliban's words are, are, are going to, to be in question until we see their actions. Um, yes. And obviously, we don't have to completely speculate. They, they've been you know, people like to pretend like they just popped into the scene a week ago. They, uh, earlier this year, they were in charge of roughly half the country. They weren't in charge of provincial capitals, but somewhere around 50 percent of Afghan territory was under Taliban control. It, it, it had been increasing steadily over the last several years. So they, 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 we have some experience where we can look. It's, it's certainly not uh, a situation that I think would, would, would rise to, to anything that, that would leave us anywhere other than continuing to say there's an unjust repression of women, um, which yes. is similarly the case in Saudi Arabia. You know, you mentioned women can now drive in Saudi Arabia. The women who protested and agitated to, to get that are, are in jail and have been persecuted by, by uh, Mohammed bin Salman and others. So there's, there's a, a deeply complex nature to this. But the underlying point is we are going to have human rights concerns with Saudi Arabia. We are going to have challenges, as we do in many other countries. And we don't have the tools to handle those at the moment. One tool we do have is diplomacy engagement. You mentioned recognition. There are hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars that the Saudi, or I'm sorry, that the, um, that the Taliban uh, would like to have access to that, that belong to the government of Afghanistan in places like the Federal Reserve. There are levers that the U.S. can use um, to try to influence behavior. The U.S. should absolutely use those levers. They, they should do what they can. Um, but again, we should follow the lead 
of the folks who are working on these issues. We should listen to Afghan women about what it is that we can do to support them. Uh, we should stop believing that a bunch of white guys sitting in Washington, D.C. have all the answers for how to solve these challenges. Uh, we don't. That's, that's not going to be the answer here. We are still going to have challenges, um, and they are going to have to be addressed. Um, and, and time is going to tell exactly what those challenges are, um, but there's no question that, that we will have challenges going ahead. Stephen Miles, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and for a really um, nuanced view of, of what's happening and for helping me push back against some kind of deeply entrenched uh, conventional wisdom. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it. Too. It's happy to be here. All that nuance is probably why I'm not on CNN. So thanks for having the space <laughs> for this conversation, Joshua. Uh, Folks, I appreciate, appreciate if it. You book, if you book a cable TV or something, uh, let me tell you something. Stephen is not hard to book. Get in touch. <laughs> I would also like to thank David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Ross Dory and Alternet for supporting the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, I'd like to thank all of you good people for tuning in. Have a terrific week. There's something happening here. But what it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going on